Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. On the show today, I like to create an intention. And for me, that intention, what are we going to create? Uh, it was connection. That was the plan all along for the day today. We're going to create some connection today. And we're going to talk about all kinds of things. And we're just going to get started right away. Our guest now is Jody Carrington, a psychologist, a writer, mom, currently hiding from the family <laughs> in her office. Uh, thanks for coming on the program, Jody. How are you, Mr. Hewitt? I, uh, I am wonderful. Thank you so much for taking some time. Although I do understand with, uh, with the fam jam being isolated at home, um, I'm actually allowing you a chance to escape uh, from them. So it's pretty fantastic. We had someone call in earlier, Jody, and suggested uh, a great suggestion. His name was Bob. He was actually calling from Airdrie just outside Calgary. And Bob suggested that we all work hard to drop social distancing and go with physical distancing only because words matter. How does that land with you? Oh, I love it. Isn't that great? Yeah. I think that's fantastic. I think that, um, you know, we're wired for connection. That's what us humans are. Um, we're better when we're together. And um, this is going to be a really tricky shift. And I think this is so true. I was just noticing in our community this morning, you know, there's so much social connection. There's sidewalk chalk messages everywhere. And, you know, people are driving by seniors' homes and, um, you know, showing them pictures and waving and doing all those things. That's not social distancing. That's physical distancing. And I love that. Yeah, I think it's something that we can do. I think we really need to take that shift. So where do you want to go today, Jody? Because um, I have a couple of ideas. Um, I'm thinking that let's talk about the babies first, because that usually gets everybody, um, you know, just understanding what you do with as a child psychologist and so much more with some of your writing that you've done. My daughter um, yesterday, she uh, the kids are staying with their mom just because of the fact that they can stay home there, and I'm in and out of the station only. I'm not you know, able to see anybody. Um, but the reality is, is that, you know, that's a decision that we've made. It's kind of crushing me a little bit. How hard is this on the babies when they're stuck at home? Hmm, such a good question. I know that being away from the people we love is, is always really tricky. Um, it, here, here's the thing. I often say this. I'm, I'm a child psychologist, but the kids are at least the problem. It is those of us holding them that they will look to for um, insight, how to, how to navigate this you know, unprecedented, uncharted territory. And here's the tricky stuff. We don't even know what the hell is going on, right? We don't, we don't know from day to day, you know, how we're supposed to show up in the world or what's okay and what's not okay and um, how we sort of stay disconnected in this process. And so, of course, our kids don't have that, um, that sort of script at all either. So, you know, even in my practice, I often say this, you know, I, I, I'm a child psychologist, but I rarely treat kids. It's the people who hold them that matter. And I really think what's really important is I, I love it that, you know, you and their mom had this conversation about what is in the best interest for those kids. And it's not that, you know, daddy or dad doesn't want to see you or dad doesn't love you or dad is, you know, missing you or all those things. But here's the plan for now, right? This isn't forever. This is for now. And this is what happens when hard things come. We come together and we make sense of it. What I love about this in some ways is that um, this isn't us against a race or a religion or another group of people. It's nonpartisan. It's complete. It's us as a human race against something that is potentially can attack all of us. And so the solidarity that it's going to take to be able to get through this means that we're going to have to do some hard things, but we're wired for it as long as we stay as connected as we possibly can. 
when we look at how people go about this, going from that place of, you know, th- this is a, a new enemy, if you will. And there are stories about SARS and MERS and Ebola. Uh, there are stories about federal investment. And there's all kinds of places that we can blame really quickly in this. Politics, decisions, whatever. That's easy. That's what your brain's trying to do. It's trying to fill in that blank so you feel more certain and better about it. But really, we are faced with an opportunity in that this is a, a new enemy that flew into our star system, if you will. Um, and we're trying to we're trying to deal with it. But there is no backstory here. There is we're present to new things. So when people are sitting with these new things, how do, how do they process that? Mm, such a good question. And, you know, I've talked about this a lot in, in the last week, as you can imagine. And I think that this particular instance of, you know, having a, a virus globally attacking the world is, is a brand new thing. What isn't new is humans having to do hard things, being brave. And the, the definition of brave is doing something where you can't predict the outcome. Right? So stepping in with your whole heart when you can't predict the outcome. It's not brave if you know how it's going to end. And this is one of the, th- the times where it's going to require bravery like no other. And we, we're good at that. We know how to do that. If we look at some of the bravest people on the planet who've done hard things who've come before us, you know, um, civil rights and uh, gender rights. And, you know, when we're looking at, you know, fighting for huge things, um, there's a bravery in that. How do we do things where we can't predict uh, the outcome? It always involves this sense of staying connected and kind. And, you know, some of the greatest leaders in the world always understand this process. And you can tell people what to do. And sometimes there is take charge moments. But when you stay connected and hold space first for how hard this is going to be, and then you direct, that's how we make such phenomenal change. And this is giving us a very, I mean, it's sad in so many ways, but it's, it is the most beautiful gift in being able to do this or have those opportunities to learn that stuff because we need it now more than ever. I will confess that uh, my conversation around this has been going on oh, it's such a blur. It feels like a lifetime um, for a couple of weeks, though. And there was a day where I came home when the kids were still with me and my son and I got into a conversation that sort of became rather just oppositional in general. And I wasn't prepared to argue. And I yelled at my son. And it's something that I did years ago as a parent. I've worked really hard with my kids on not doing. But there I was. I was a dad. Uh, boy, I just got hit right there. There was the emotion right there. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have any work scheduled past April 3rd. I'll just say it for what it is. All the people listening, for me right now, I don't. Mm-hmm. That's it. So... Mm-hmm. I have a business in ashes. Um, there's no work past April 3rd. And then I yell at my kid. How do we say no to the kids without saying no uh, to the kids? We've got about a minute here and we will approach the rest of it if you don't have enough time after the break. But how do we get through that moment? Because I'm not the only parent who's yelled at a kid um, and it's not the kid's fault. So how do we say no, we can't do that without saying no and losing our mind? Oh, first of all, Dad, we've got to give you so much grace, okay? So here's the, here's the first thing in this process. When hard things come, we are emotionally charged. We're disconnected. We're angry. We're scared. We do all those things. When we get in that place, it's hard for us to stay regulated. It's hard for us to show up to be the best dads and moms and grandparents that we can be, right? So we've got to give ourselves some grace in this. We are unprecedented, uncharted territory. We don't know what's going on and we're scared. We have all of these things that are on our plates. And so we, the people we love the most are going to be the hardest to give it to right now. 
So you and I both know that that's not how you want to show up. I, I mean, I don't want to show up. I mean, if you saw me and I was my child, I wrote a book. I'm a child psychologist. I wrote a book. If you would have saw the knockdown shoot 'em out that I had with my own personal children yesterday, involving one spitting over the banister <laughs> and me firing a pillow up the guy. Are we allowed to swear? Up the <laughs> Try not to, please. <laughs> friggin' stairs, and I chased her up the stairs, and the boy said to me, "Don't hurt her, mom." I'm like. I'm not going to hurt her. I'm just, you know, like, and it takes those moments of, like, okay, okay, bring it on down. And the more disconnected we become in this process, the more difficult it is going to be to stay regulated. Our guest right now is Jody Carrington. She's a psychologist. She's also an author. She wrote the book. Uh, turns out that um, with our storytelling of our experiences, maybe we should write the book on how not to do things uh, because that's what people do. That's where we sort of left it, Jody. is that as much as we try hard, we're going to fall down from time to time as parents. So when we're dealing with the kids and we want to sort of tell them no without telling them no, especially to the ones that aren't going to understand what a virus is, what a pandemic is, why we can't go to the park today, how do we do that? Oh, that's a good question. So, you know, I, I think a little bit, you know, I, I was telling you um, when I wrote Kids These Days, it was really about this idea of how do we give ourselves grace as parents, because this is the hardest friggin' job on the planet, let alone when you're in the middle of a, a global pan- pandemic. Nobody has written the manual on this part. I think one of the things that is the most helpful for us to remember is the importance of not trying to fix everything, because First of all, we don't have the answers for this. Many people are searching, you know, on a global initiative to try to figure out the answers to this. And so um, one of our biggest superpowers ever, whether you're a business leader or in your marriage or with your kids, is to hold space. So to be able to just hang on to that question for a second before you start to give them an answer. And oftentimes what is happening is when kids are ask, asking the relentless questions or when they're getting dysregulated or, you know, they're, they're irritable or friggin' losing their minds because you're locked in a small space with them. What needs to happen, just like with you and me, is they just need to be heard. And that is the hardest thing when we have no space to give it to. But there's three things that often help me in this process. And um, when I get it right, just 30% of the time, I screw it up 70% of the time. So first of all, that's okay. You can screw this shit up or stuff up 70% of the time and it's still okay. Um, There's data on it. And it's an average. You can dip into the 20s. But some of the things that allow me to hold space is to say things like this. Instead of answering right away, say things like, tell me more. What are you scared about the most? Right? What can I do? What am I missing? And even if it's as obvious as, you know, can I go out and, you know, smoke weed with my buddies uh, tonight? um, It becomes so hard not to answer that right away. It doesn't mean you won't. It doesn't mean you can't. It doesn't mean you're not going to take charge in that moment. But how do we hold some space for all the emotion that's swirling around in this process? And it is probably one of our biggest superpowers to be able to do that. You know, um, Gordon Newfeld talks about collecting before you direct. Stephen Covey talks about, um, you know, seeking first to understand before being understood. Um, this isn't the first time that these have happened. And when we are, or these first suggestions that people have made around this. But when we get into this space of really being scared and overwhelmed and worried about, you know, where we're headed financially, where we're headed in terms of our relationships, the people we love going to die, it becomes really hard to hold that space. And so, you know, just having that cognizant um, or having that discussion about, okay, I'm going to, this is my big goal today, 20% of the time, 30% of the time, I'm going to try to hold some space, I think is one of our biggest superpowers. When we look at those little babies, 
Um, there, there's a thing that we use in radio, which is called when in doubt, leave it out. And not to be forgotten that just to contribute, I mean, I'm not a doctor. I mean, I've played one from time to time, but I'm not a doctor. And um, there, there is always that. I mean, just because it's occurring for us doesn't mean it's um, occurring for everybody. Is that that sort of understand before being understood part? Yeah. You know, I, I think so much of this right now is, you know, and, and, you know, when we're on these platforms, you know, just chain like you and I um, have these baby little tiny platforms, no matter what they are, either as we're important in our communities or, you know, the people who are surrounding us with, it, it's the importance, I think, to stay in your own lane. And I'm trying really hard not to offer suggestions or advice and things that, that I don't know about. And, and the one thing that I think we're all good at is being able to walk each other through this in some capacity. And Ram Dass, he's one of my favorite philosophers on the, on the planet, said this, we are all just here walking each other home. Mm. We are all just here walking each other home. And at a time like this, grace, connection, being able to understand what we can do to be helpful for each other, whether it's to give a $50 tip at the takeout Chinese local tan, you know, restaurant, drive by your senior's home, write a chalk message, do all of those things to stay connected, you'll be better for it. Now, does that take away the fact that, you know, people in your family are sick, that you don't know where the paycheck's going to come from? Not one time. Not one time. Is that not the reality that we're facing? We will handle those things so much more clearly, so much more confidently, when we give ourselves that grace to be able to stay connected because we are just walking each other home. Dr. Jody Carrington, 1-800-263-2428. Uh, let's go to line three. Michael is in Toronto. Uh, you had a question, Michael, about resiliency and working together? Yes, that's right. And especially there's been a lot of research on promoting resiliency. And I'm just wondering with everything going on, how do we do that? And how do we also maintain a sense of hopefulness, especially when a lot of people are being overwhelmed by the information? Jody? Hi, Michael from Toronto. Okay, hi, Jody. <laughs> hi. Um, thanks for calling in. I think that is such a fantastic question. Here's the, the, the very short answer I have. You can't tell people how to be kind. You can't tell people how to calm down. you got to show them. Never in the history of telling somebody to calm down has calm down ever worked. Never in the history of telling somebody to be kind while you're yelling at them has it worked. And resilience is also not a thing that is something we're born with. We've got to show them how to do it. How do we band together and be resilient in this process means we got to do it ourselves. we got to lead that way, even with our own parents, with our friendship groups, with the people who we serve, whether we have children or, you know, you're leading a company, whatever that deal is. Resiliency is a thing that is, you only have access to when you're regulated, when you're connected. Being resilient means I can handle hard things. And what I know without a doubt is that, as a clinical psychologist is we're wired for this stuff. I mean, I say that, I've said this to, to humble mamas, people who are stage four are going to lose their babies. Um, you know, I would say the same thing to them as I would say to you. We're wired for it, but we're also wired for connection. Resiliency comes from talking each other down when the hard things are there. And for so many of us, this is the first time in the history of the free world that, that when we are all, you know, certainly in this lifetime, um, that we've faced one common enemy. And it's global. Does that answer your question, Michael? Yes, it does. I think that's incredibly powerful advice, and I think it's really sort of helpful sort of modeling behavior where the idea is to, to be calm. You've got to practice calmness yourself. I think that's incredibly helpful. Thank you. 
Brilliant. Thanks. Thank you so much, Michael. Okay, have a great day. Bye-bye. You too. All right, 1-800-263-2428. It's remarkable, isn't it, uh, Jody, when we just take... I, I always use the metaphor of sort of standing uh, and turning around, right? Um, quite often in life we chase things, but stillness comes when we stay in one spot. And when we when we sit where we are right now, I mean, in front of me, of course, I see a microphone, I see a red light, I see a TV, I see the video conference with the gang in Hamilton. Uh, you know, but there still are all kinds of things going on. And sometimes when we turn around and change that perspective, it really does change everything. Oh, you know, I mean, that, that, that is a crazy thing about this process right now. And I mean, I, I want to be so careful when we talk about this as a gift, um, because I understand that some people are in the fight of their life, literally, uh, in this moment. And um, I want to acknowledge that 150,000%. But it, it's so interesting. I, I even asked for so many years that I wish things would just slow down. I asked for time. I always would say this time is my biggest commodity. I mean, I have three young babies and a, I have a great husband, um, but time is my commodity, right? And now we're given it, and I'm sort of in this place. I'm like, I don't want it. I don't know. I don't know what to do. I don't even like my children. I don't want a parent. I clearly, I turns out I don't know how to cook. I yep. tried to bake yesterday. Jesus Lord, it was awful. And this whole thing now, it, it, you know, I'm sure many of your listeners are parents we're expected to, to teach. And so many people are panicked about that, about homeschooling their children. And, and you should be panicked because you're not a teacher, right? And it's okay. We, these babies are going to be okay in this process. We're going to be okay in this process. And what I love about it is, you know, people, the first two days out of school, we got whiteboards and schedules and we're trying to learn how to teach algebra. Listen, man, you're, you're not a teacher. These people went to school for a considerable amount of time. It'd be like me walking into a hospital today. So I, I hear them with nurses. I'm on it. I'm on it. I can start an IV. It's like, I mean, how hard can it be? Can you just shoot out? Like, I just got to find a vein? Like, how far does that? Well, you, we're not those things. How do we come together and do the best we can with what we got and understand that this, if we do it right, is temporary? We are talking about impact of all things. And we have a caller right now that we're, I'm actually, Jody, not going to uh, pick up the caller just out of the sake of time. Um, but I want to acknowledge Margaret from Hamilton, who's asking, how do we deal with people who refuse to self-isolate after returning home? And the reason why, uh, just out of the sake of time, I want to address the question is we are talking about leading by example. And um, the, the reality is that's a tough one to lead by example when we can't, when we're sitting at home. So how, how, how do you suggest for Margaret that we lead by example in, in, in self-isolation outside of our, our bubbles, if you will? Yeah, I love that, Margaret. And I think it's such a good question. And I'm getting it a lot these days. It's like, how do we influence the people we love the most? And there's absolutely take charge moments because, I mean, this, this is an important deal for all of us. I don't think it's about if we have those conversations. I think it's how we do it. And I think we've got to pay very close attention to how jacked we are, how you know excited we are or angry we are about this process. But I think having honest conversations, even at the best of times, is really important now. Um, doing that not publicly, not calling people out, not you know shaming people for that, I think is probably your best bet. I think having one-on-one conversations to the best of our capacity. It's sometimes hard to have conversations with our own family, particularly our teenagers. I hear a lot of People asking me that about the teenagers, you know, who just want to be out with their friends. Um, oftentimes we have, it's most difficult with our own children. So, I mean, I've, I've even, we made some suggestions today about like, you know, call your teacher, call the gym teacher, call somebody, you know, your best, their best friend's mom who has a better relationship with them um, to, to have that one-on-one conversation. You know what, dude, this is serious. We really need you to be at home right now. And can you do that for me? 
And how we have those conversations, I think, is not is the most important. Not if we're going to have them. It's time to have those conversations. Not if, but how. Robert from Vancouver uh, is also on the line. He can hear the answer there. I'll just read the question. Uh, Robert wants to know how he can communicate his positivity. Um, he has a religious point of view. That's his background. But he's trying to find a way to do it in more of a secular fashion so he can still be positive around people and find a way to do that um, without sort of scaring people off with the religious factor and just try to try to lead a little differently that he doesn't uh, have the comfort in. Oh, that's amazing. Hi, Robert. Um, I feel that... Th- Here's here's the the basis of any secular program. Typically, um, is really this idea of kindness and connection. And what I want you to think about is, you know, when we put our beliefs on other people before sort of collecting this idea of collecting before you direct. That's a Gordon Newfeld term, who's a another Canadian psychologist um, who taught me a lot of stuff. And he he really has said this idea. You know, if you collect before you direct. Um, I think it's really about, you know, my message is an important one because it's all about we're, you know, we're walking each other home, we're in this together. And I need to tell you, you know, my belief is we're guided by a, a bigger power, whatever that particular belief is. I think, again, it comes down to, you know, not if we're going to do it, but how. Maybe love people first, explain the reasons later. It sounds interesting. Yeah, I love it. man. Yeah, you got to get there first. You got to get to their heart before you can get to their mind. Yeah. So we talked about parents. Some of us are not only parents, but we're also children at the same time. And we're dealing with uh, some older folks that are going through this. Now, my parents' generation, and they have a history of being born soon after the war, the impact of their parents that lived through the war is heavy on some hearts right now. Hmm. I, it's, I'm so glad you brought that up, Shane, because, you know, I, I've had a couple of people, we've, we've had some conversations about it this week. Um, the other, one of the other things I talk a lot about is trauma. And um, I spend a lot of time doing this work with first responders. And the number one thing that I think I've learned in this space of trauma is that the body keeps the score. So many of our parents have been through epidemics that are, are were significantly scary in nature, you know, famines, wars. Um, being separated or segregated from each other, you know, having their son sent to war. And the body keeps the score. It's actually, that's the title of a book that Bessel Bessel van der Kolk, Dr. van der Kolk has written. It's called The Body Keeps the Score. And it's really about how so many people will show up and it seemingly be overreacting to things like this. But it's really imprinted from a much time before we were even there, before we even became their babies that they understood. And so I often hear people saying, you know, my parents want to go to the grocery store every single day or they're um, hoarding the toilet paper and the, all of the things because, you know, they, they know how bad this can get. And it's very difficult to separate that, um, that this isn't then um, and how we're into that place really, I think, matters sometimes. And so, again, the deal is how do we give them grace? How do we help them regulate? How do we stay connected um, and let them know that, you know, you got us now. We're, we're going to figure this out together. We're going to do the best we can, and we've got to keep you safe. And it's not an end game. You're not going to have the conversation one time because every day we step into this new state of affairs. I mean, what, one week ago today, I was at the mall, mm. right? I was talking to 450 people in one room, and um, in, in one week, in 24 hours, things are specifically changing, you know, or not specifically, so significantly changing. So this isn't an end game, friends. We've got to keep connecting to each other again and again and again just to keep regulated. Uh, there's so many ways we can go and being limited by time is, uh, is so incredibly difficult. Uh, Jody Carrington, I wanted to say thank you so much for you because uh, you've always been there for me. 
So um, when, um, whenever I, I wanted to have conversation on the radio, and I really appreciate you for that. Oh, I'm so glad you had me. Thanks for calling in. Uh, thanks for spending time with us today. Um, your website, so everyone can you know reach out if they have any questions, uh, because your network of psychologists is also quite quite vast. So uh, if somebody is looking for some assistance um, and maybe an ear uh, for some services, uh, maybe not for you because maybe it doesn't work out that way, but for a referral or at least some direction on some phone numbers, where can they reach you? Yeah, we're at www.drjodycarrington.com, and we have a little practice here in Alberta. Um, but there's lots of resources now put out, you know, by Canadian Mental Health and, you know, all across the, the, the planet. Now, I think that's going to be something that we really need to focus on. But we're, we're I go live every day um, now during the Corona quarantine, we like to call it. It's our little morning show. Uh, we do a eight mountain. I just pop on for 20 minutes and just connect. And then I always, I always do a Facebook live or a Instagram live on Sunday nights at eight mountain as well. So follow us on, come find us. This community that we're building is powerful and connected and, and all inclusive. So it's been, we call ourselves, uh, we're doing this little thing called a reconnection revolution because it's time that we stay connected particularly now. Thank you for uh, investing your time here today. We just asked for some good news, and uh, most came in emails. Thank you for all the phone calls. I uh, noted some of those down, too. Uh, we tried desperately at a quick period of time there to write those down. I got messages from Chad. He says, I never make time to walk my dog. Normally the family does that. Today I did, and I loved it. Uh, Jason said, I wrote jokes. I've always wanted to be a comedian. Now I'm going to start. Interesting. Uh, Mary said, turns out I make pretty good cookies. It's too bad we can't share the cookies right now because, I mean, I could, use, I could go for some cookies. Even things like, um, you know, in the workplace, like Timbits. Someone brought in Timbits last week into the office, and I was kind of like, ooh, not sure if we can do that right now. That's too bad. Trina said, the price of gas is great. What year is it? If only we could go somewhere, huh? It would be so nice to enjoy that one. And uh, Jesse said, my pool is open. Just random good news. There is not all bad news, but there is some serious Hurdles and work ahead of us, that's for sure. Joining us now is uh, Moshe Lander, Professor of Economics at Concordia University. Uh, Moshe, thanks for spending some time with us today. My pleasure. Well, economics seem to only have um, one thing to do right now, and that's just earn $1. That's kind of where we're at, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it just seems to be going from bad to worse, right? Each time you think that, uh, all right, we're we're almost out of this, it's just it's more bad news, more deaths, more shutdowns, more uh, quarantines, isolations. Here in Quebec, we were just told that uh, we can expect this is now going to go on till at least May first, with all of the shutdowns and uh, they're shutting down even more stuff. So, uh, yeah, not not a good time. Okay, well, I guess my first question really is, is like, budgets don't exist right now, do they? Is this one of those things where we just do it and hope it works out? Like, how is it possible in economics, we plan for making our way through this? Or is this accountants are literally like sliding the abacus back and forth right as we go trying to figure it out? Yeah, you know, right now, the the idea of trying to balance a budget is probably out the window. It's really a matter that the the economy is in very dangerous position right now, and it it can very easily crater. And to try and stop that from happening, uh, you have two levers that you can use. One is fiscal policy, which is the spending of the government. The other one is monetary policy, which is the decisions of the Bank of Canada in trying to kind of steer interest rates to to prop up the economy. Uh, monetary policy is kind of running out of its uh, uh, 
arrows in its quiver. And so it's really going to fall on fiscal policy, that, that idea of just budget-busting spending to just keep things going. Is it about dropping off the, the, the not necessary, prioritizing, uh, luxury things get cut real quick? So how does, how does fiscal responsibility step into a time where it's hard to see sort of beyond what's right in front of us? Yeah, well, I mean, from a consumer standpoint right now, it's the idea of you have to provide the essentials. So we're a lot of us are at risk of losing our jobs, temporary layoffs, permanent layoffs, businesses going down. Uh, the idea is that, uh, you know, the government's going to try and help us by trying to provide extended EI, Canada child benefits, tax cuts, delayed payments to the government, anything to try and make sure that whatever pay we are receiving uh, stays in our pockets so that we can make sure that we meet rent and utilities and food for the kids and things like that. Uh, from the government standpoint, what they need to do is just jump into the breach here and make sure that we don't see uh, huge jumps in unemployment uh, and, and businesses starting to uh, declare bankruptcy because they, they can't operate anymore in this closed environment. So, uh, you know, both sides basically have to figure out where is spending most essential and how do we just keep it going until we're given the all clear that we can kind of get on with something resembling normalcy. Is anything like that even possible when, by the way, you can't leave your house is a, is a thing? Yeah, I mean, you know, they're, they're trying to at least keep things like uh, grocery stores open and restaurants in a limited sense open. So, you know, I guess if you're kind of running the Uber Eats end of the, the economy and, and some of those kind of services, you, you do have the capacity to continue on, um, you know, home delivery uh, of shopping online and things like that is going to start to grow in importance the longer that we're kind of pinned down. So there is the capacity for the economy to continue on in some sense. Uh, anything that we can do from the, the house, we're, of course, being encouraged to do, whether that's broadcasting radio programs or delivering online courses or things like that. So they're going to still try and kind of keep things uh, in a skeletal form. And, of course, if you're doing things at home, things like Netflix and Crave and uh, those sorts of things, you know, are, are certainly going to see some sort of benefit from people staying at home uh, and, and kind of that home economy type thing. It'll be remarkable to see if the Internet becomes an essential service out of the dust of all this, that's for sure. It has me curious. One of the questions that I get often that I really don't have an answer for feel like I should, but I really don't, is why can't we just print more money? Well, I'll give you the answer right here. You can. Um, the, the Bank of Canada does have the capacity to print money. Um, part of it is trying to channel that money into the economy. So one way to do it is if you print the money and you hand it over to the government and you say, all right, now go give that to people, you know, deposit $1,000 into everybody's bank account, uh, you can do that. Uh, most... Um, High school students, when they talk about uh, this sort of idea of printing money, they're, they're taught pretty early on the idea that that's going to create inflation. Uh, the, the good side of it right now is that when there really is no demand in the economy, what we would expect to see is prices to start to fall. And if prices start to fall, that would be deflation. So printing money is almost a, a way to kind of counter that and keep prices stable or, uh, or from falling, which, odd as it would sound, is actually a bad thing. Is deflation really all that bad? I mean, there was a day when a toaster used to cost $10, and now you can spend $200 on a toaster. Is it all bad? Yeah, well, you know, deflation is the idea that the average price is falling. So it's not that all prices are falling, and it's not even that some prices are falling. So we're, you can cite an example that, you know, hey, it would be great if laptop computers went down in price. That's good. But if you find that the average price of things is falling, most consumers will get it into their head that 
you can delay your purchases except for the essential purchases until a later point and then it'll be cheaper. But once that starts to enter into your mindset, the next thing you do is that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If all of us decide that we're not going to spend on anything that's not essential, then prices will fall. And, and when the next year comes around, we start to believe our own hype and our own predictive powers. And so we say, well, if it worked this year, why don't we do it again? And so right. you could enter into this spiral where prices start to fall. And if that starts to happen, then at some point, that's going to start to squeeze the ability of uh, businesses to expand production and to, to want to kind of continue operating uh, when their profit margins are being squeezed. And the only thing that can come out of that is we're going to see our wages get cut. So yeah. it, it's actually a good idea to kind of, you know, do a little bit of money printing right now to try and make sure that prices don't become hyperinflationary, but at least kind of continue to go up. And uh, it's kind of that idea of a little grease for the wheel, right? Yeah, it's uh, this is way out of my depth, so I do appreciate you answering uh, the questions and helping us out here. But it sounds like it's a it's a bit of a dance that we have to do. But what happens when the mentality is is I'm just not going to spend that money and I put it in my pocket regardless? The minute, doesn't that just vanish out of the economy? And that's a problem. It does. It, you're right. It does. And so that that's exactly where you know in the depression. Uh, which I don't think either of us were around for. Uh, You know, the the great problem was that people did stop spending, that when you start to see an economy melt down around you, our first instinct is to save money and hold on for a rainy day. Um, The entire generation that grew up in the Depression uh, was actually psychologically scarred by that, and they had kind of this real default towards always saving throughout their life because they were never sure when the next crisis was going to come. The role of the government then at this point is with that fiscal policy idea is to say, all right, if you guys are not in a position psychologically where you're prepared to spend, then we're going to jump in now and we're going to do the spending. And we're going to say that regardless of what it takes, we're going to keep the economy afloat until we do get past the worst of this crisis. And once we get past it, then you will be inclined as consumers to say, all right, now I want to get back out there and enjoy the things that I couldn't. Uh, And once that starts to happen, we would expect that a responsible government would then kind of back away and say, all right, now that you guys are ready to carry the the mantle here, we, we can kind of back off and just go back to our business as usual too. Mine might be a peanut buster parfait, just in case you're wondering, is the first thing that I could do when luxury is that that could be where I go. Where would you go? Um, you, you know what? I'm missing sports right now, so yeah. I'm having a lot of withdrawal from not being able to watch Stanley Cup playoffs. And yeah, a live hockey system. game or something like that? Absolutely. That's a really Absolutely. good point. Even though my team stink, I, I, I want to see them as stink <laughs> uh, on TV rather than just imagine in my head. <laughs> uh, that's so good. You might make me reevaluate it, that's for sure. I do miss watching it on TV, for sure. Uh, Moshe Lander, thank you so much. Professor of Economics and Concordia University, helping us understand, I think, the gravity, but still the opportunity that is found with little responsibility uh, through all this. Thank you, sir. My pleasure. Anytime. Now we're going to step forward into small business with Dan Kelly, President CFIB, the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses. Uh, Wow. Um, How do we support small business, Dan, when they're closed? It is pretty bad right now for a lot of small, medium-sized firms. So anything your your listeners can do to try to, uh, as best they can from self-isolation, visit uh, small businesses or at at the very minimum, call small businesses to see if they've got ways to deliver goods, uh, or provide services during this emergency phase, uh, that'd be greatly appreciated. You know, there's a whole bunch of people lining up at Costco and Walmart, but there's lots and lots of small companies around that are that, that are trying as best they can to remain open, uh, listening, of course, to whatever restrictions are there. So visiting your local small companies is a great way to try to keep them going at this difficult time. So what are you hearing from your members um, 
I guess have the is it the scary level where phones have now just fallen quiet? It is well. Look, business owners are really struggling. They're trying to balance a bunch of objectives. One, trying to maintain uh, the safety of their employees, obviously, uh, making sure that they can, in, as much as they can, pay their employees. Uh, third, making sure that they can t- try to continue as best they can serving their customers, and finally, trying to protect the future viability of their very businesses. Right now in Canada, when we did a poll last weekend, we've got a new one out right now, uh, but of our 110,000 small and medium-sized businesses who are members of CFIB, a full quarter of them said that they would not be able to last a month uh, without, uh, with a significant drop in their business income, of a, a drop by half. But for many, just over this course of this past week, the business has fallen off a cliff. It's not just cut by half, but for many, they've, they've had to shut down operations altogether, uh, or they're they're seeing maybe ten percent of their original clients that and it this is and it's getting worse sadly as the restrictions mount so it's a a real challenge for businesses and i'm I'm worried as to how many uh, will actually uh, end up just closing up shop altogether by the end of this. One perspective I wanted to turn to here was for the listeners who are not business owners, because I think we sometimes forget that. And sometimes we are just employees of a small business. And this is a great example. And that, that's great. I'm not saying anyone should be a business owner or should, should not be an employee or whatever. Everyone gets to fill that role. We get to make that choice if you do this or do that. So there's, there's no right or wrong in that. But I, we do have an opportunity here to have everybody listen from the perspective of this is what my boss goes through as a small business owner that I didn't know about. And there's an awful lot of insulating that has to go on in order to protect the workers, the family, you know, because for most small businesses, those employees are family, literally and figuratively. Multiple business owners seem super susceptible in this, unless they're lucky and have one that's still alive. But when you have multiple businesses, that really gets bad, doesn't it? It, it sure does, and, and I, I appreciate everything you've just said. They, you know, business owners are trying to do the best they possibly can for their workers, but you know, it's, it's tough if you have zero business income, as many do right now, the, you know, you're, you're only going to be able to pay your employees for so long. Uh, many of our members have already said that they're starting to pay their employees from their pocket because they have no income uh, from the business itself from which to pay them. Um, but that's not going to last forever, and, and government has offered some support uh, to their credit. Uh, they've expanded employment insurance eligibility so that it's a little bit easier if you have to lay off your employee, uh, you know, because they're they're in a quarantine period. Uh, for some, they'll have a, a they'll waive the one week waiting period. Uh, they did offer small business owners just this past week a 10% wage subsidy up to a maximum of 25 grand per employer. I got to tell you, I think that's a drop in the bucket, and we're going to need to see something much, much larger if we're going to stave off mass unemployment. 500,000 people, a a half a million Canadians were let go just this past week, Uh, and I can't see any way that it's going to be less than a million Canadians let go uh, by the end of the following week if we don't put some measures in place, if the Canadian government doesn't follow the lead of, of Denmark and, and the UK and, and most of the Western European countries, where the wage subsidies, if you're able to hang on to a worker, are somewhere in the range of 75, 80, 90 percent. Uh, right now, 10 percent with a max of, max of 25 grand is unlikely to help you hang on to your employee uh, through, the, through the crisis period of this, and, and that's our big worry right now. 
And what that doesn't even get into retraining, does it? I mean, like, even if you're gone and then, you know, there's a layoff and they your employee finds a job working somewhere else because they've got to go take care of their thing. Now, not only your your spool up is even longer because you have no foundation to do business and there could be retraining there. And that's expensive. It is. Uh, you know, the, the, the way that we're going to get through this, the way that we're going to uh, recover quickly is if we can keep employees connected to their work uh, to their employers. If we if if employers have to lay them off in large number and that's already starting, uh, it is going to take us so much longer to get the economy back up on its feet once the emergency phase is done. If we can keep the employees paid through this period of time, not only does that reduce the stress level on an employee for you know who might be worried if their job is going to uh, stick around or is going to be there or not. Uh, but once the once the crisis ends, immediately that employee can then be welcomed back to work. Uh, that, to me, is the best outcome for us right now, is to have governments basically taking over the wage bill. And look, this is a difficult recommendation for us. We typically, uh, the business community asks government to, to leave us alone, don't tax the hell out of us, and, and let us uh, get, get to work ourselves. This is something altogether different, something that we've not seen, where governments are ordering businesses to close. And I'm not challenging that notion whatsoever i think the public health officials have to do what they what you know and, and we have to listen uh at the same time these businesses are closing and 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 they're and many of them are not going to make it if we're not able to at least support their largest expense which is their wage bill dan kelly is the president of canadian federation of independent business thank you for the time today dan i appreciate it anytime you can hear the compounding, right? You can hear how it starts to compound, that the, the workers are there, then the workers are gone, and then even if there is a reopen date, then there's a retraining time, so there's not even full service available for a little while, and it starts to compound again and again and again and again. Investing locally, it's a great idea. If you can, if there's a store open down the street, even if it's a national store but open down the street, that could be your neighbors that are there. Uh, you know, working inside that store. Maybe it works. Nobody has the answers, I can tell you that much. Uh, Flynn from Surrey says that normalcy is a long ways away. He says, if we haven't saved enough to cope with what's going on right now, then we're finished. We've been operating on a shoestring, thin margins for too long. And Flynn, uh, yeah, I think you're right. And I think there is absolutely a lesson to be learned there. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, Subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.